This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real, practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode, we speak to Bethany Black. I talk a lot about sex on stage because so many people are so squeamish about it and so embarrassed about it. She tells us about coming out as trans. The social worker went, oh, it's all. And I was like, and it was just like a weight lifted off my chest. Discovering her sexuality. I don't find the thought of sleeping with men absolutely repulsive, so therefore I must be bi. And the ulterior motive of her school sex education. Almost all of it was about how you don't have to smoke. (laughs) Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and I'm joined as ever by accredited sex and relationship therapist Kate Campbell. Hello mum. Hello Diggs. Every week mum and I give sex and relationships a good going over with a guest and this week we're joined by a woman often described as Britain's only goth, lesbian, transsexual comedian. It's Bethany Black. We have a great chat with Bethany coming up where we discuss her life, her sex education and a whole lot more. So stay tuned for that. But mum. Yes. We've done this podcast thing for a while now, and suddenly yeah. I, I just thought, like, what is the process of sex therapy or relationship oh. therapy? Like, how, how? Let's say I'm a person or I'm a couple. How do I recognise that I might benefit from sex therapy or relationship therapy? And then from there, how do I get it? And then what are my first few sessions like? Well, I suppose something's worrying you mm. is the answer, and you can Google relationship therapists and sex therapists they're not the same thing actually some people are just relationship therapists or just sex therapists and some people are both like me some sex therapists are listed on the college of sexual and relationship therapists website or they might be on the british association of counseling and psychotherapy where you'll also find some sex and relationship therapists counseling directory you know, just Google them as well. And there are other places. So that's how you'd find one. And what about the first session? So the first session, if it was sex therapy, for instance, you would be talking about what's going on for them and then talking about what you might do next, whether relationship therapy would be best or sex therapy or one and then the other, whatever. Mm. So after that first session, let's assume it's sex therapy, then people have, if if they come to me, for instance, there would be quite a long history taking. And the history taking is part of the treatment, which can be very useful for people because it's an opportunity to put to bed some unhelpful ideas, to give some education about some things, to just talk about how you're feeling. That that can 
be enough for some people. Mm. After that, though, they go on to have a meeting with the therapist about what the therapist has discovered and what their goals for the treatment would be. And mm. then they would start straight into the the so-called treatment, um, which which will be entirely designed for that couple or individual mm. and dependent on what their and, and dependent issue is. on what their issue is yes but but it always always involves a sex ban always oh. and if it's the kind of sex therapy i do it will involve touching exercises some talking ones behavioral ones some body ones all sorts of things mm. that they do together and separately and then they'll come back feedback on their exercises and be set some more and everything is experimental so there's nothing scary about it it's that the emphasis is taken away from outcome and towards mm. learning so that everything is seen as an experiment and therefore they can't get it wrong mm. it's just how did you feel about it how did it go yeah how did it go yeah. and in the early stages then of course as we've heard in earlier episodes they won't be talking to one another about how they're finding the exercises that will be banned. So each partner doesn't know what the other one's thinking to begin with, which is really helpful because too often they're trying to second guess the other one and trying to please the other one. And mm. the emphasis at the beginning absolutely has to be on pleasing yourself. And more importantly, managing to take care of your feelings when you don't know what the other person's thinking, mm. which is really difficult. Yeah, and and really really interesting. But bottom line is, if you think you've got a problem, look it up. Look up some therapists. Mum gave some great examples there, which will pop in the show notes as well. Yeah, there is some there is some NHS availability and some agencies that offer sex and relationship therapy as well. Great. Well, we'll get a little taster of some more of that therapeutic knowledge later in the show when I put a couple of conundrums to Kate that listeners have sent in via podcast at hatchet.com or using the hashtag realsexedu. But before that, we spoke to comedian Bethany Black and we began, as always, by asking her what her sex education was like. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like awful, terrible. I mean, um, my parents, for start, like tried to be as progressive as they could be, really, and sort of uh, considering the era and stuff like that. But there were even sort of like little bits of of their own hang-ups that got imparted through that. I remember just an offhanded comment by my mum when I was little that women don't like having their boobs touched. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, right, OK. And I just took that as gospel. Uh, and then later realised, <laughs> no, that is absolutely the exact opposite of... <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, and, and my school sex education was uh, pretty appalling as well. Like, it was just mm. so embarrassing and basic. Like, mm. there was very little to it. Mm. It was one of those lessons that was just left to whoever it was, <laughs> whoever was, like, was free on that particular afternoon. It was, like, yeah. whatever was left out, and they'd have to come in, and they'd show us these videos for relationship-type situations, and none of that was of any use either. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of it actually. Do you know what I've just realised in thinking about it? Almost all of it was about how you don't have to smoke. <laughs> what <laughs> they're trying to fit two in one in there, yeah. aren't they? You don't have to smoke in order to uh, attract attract people of the opposite sex, uh, because that was what it was all about. It was you know it was it was the mid it was the early to mid nineties, so it was incredibly sort of like heterosexual because mm. uh, obviously it had to be with the law. And mm. I, the only thing, because I've been thinking about this a bit over the last couple of days, the only two things that I can really remember 
about our sex education at school was in one of the science lessons and one of the kids asking a substitute science teacher <laughs> uh, whether pubes can be different colours and black. And that's literally about the only thing that I really properly remember from my sex education at school was one of the teachers going, well, well um, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, yes, yes, they can. <laughs> wow. So where, so then, what, I mean, from then to now, do you think you were any wiser? <laughs> <laughs> How's your sex education? Did you get it from anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, I got loads of sex education after school and outside of it mm. from various different places and just through, like, growing up and learning who I am and realising mm. who I am, you know. Being trans mm. and, and and being gay and and slowly having to try and figure out exactly what these two things meant to me and navigating the shame of those. Mm. In order to sort of go, well, this is who I am and I've just got to accept myself and working through that and coming to terms with that and then being able to talk about those things on stage and then having people come mm. up to me afterwards going, don't think about what other people say, just accept yourself. I'm like, well, I have, that's how I was able to talk about this stuff, but it's clear that you <laughs> yeah. did. Um, but I mean, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, the reason we always talk about sex education, I, I suppose that... You know, for a lot of people, they have that base layer to go off. I mean, even though everyone comes on this podcast and says that is a shit base layer, you know, everyone comes on and says they had a shit sex education. But like you said, for a lot of people, it's very heteronormative. For a lot of people, they're cisgendered and straight. So at least they always have something to fall back on. So you have a very unique perspective in that you did it. And so, yeah, it's interesting to hear about how you navigated that. Yeah, because I think just so much of it in terms of what we're taught as, or at least were taught as... Uh, sex mm. education it was essentially how not to get pregnant um and how not to smoke in your case yeah well. <laughs> exactly exactly the two things are combined because you know if you can stop them from smoking what are they going to do after they've had sex think about it they're not going to do mm. it again because yeah. so much of it was just about you know not getting pregnant um and, and if you're not sort of like standard issue human you know if you're not mm. the default Almost everything that you've got to learn, you can kind of either play it off that or you've also got so much stuff that comes from myth and schoolyard myths. Mm. And that not talking about it is the thing which goes and drives so many of those, not normalising it. Mm. When I came out as trans, my brother was freaked out, partly because my parents had moved to a little tiny village when he was about six or seven years old. And Mm. it's the sort of little tiny village where he was considered an outsider. And even though I was born like nine months after my parents moved there and nine months after their anniversary. So I can't possibly think what the connection is of me suddenly being born seven years after after my yeah. siblings. Um, but all he ever really wanted to do was to try and fit in and fit in with the people mm. in the village that we lived in. Like He really is sort of like the white sheep of our family. You know, um, mm. the rest of mm. us are all a bit odd and a bit eccentric and a bit strange. And he never, he just found all of that hugely embarrassing. And so when I came out as trans and his kids knew, he got very angry and was like, you know, they'll grow up and they'll be fucked up. And I was like, well, you know, you made the decision to raise them Catholic, so the damage is done there, to be, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But uh, the thing is, kids find everything strange and weird. The whole world's mm. strange and weird to them. So if mm. you just go and start normalising things that adults find a bit strange and weird, 
And you go, well, no, actually, this this is a thing that some people are like this, and not everybody will, you know, be straight and and cisgender, and you know, and there's all this different variance in human behaviour and in who people are, mm. and it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as no one's hurting anybody else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But his reaction to that was just he was just like struggled with that so much. Mm. And, you know, what I quite like is that my nephew, who is now in his late 20s, does the sex education uh, teaching at his, at his wow. school and deals with the LGBT sort of uh, inclusivity. Yeah. Which is really, really lovely. It's a really lovely thing to, have, to yeah. sort of go. Oh, wow. Has it sort of come full circle? That's really sweet. Yeah, yeah it has. And my brother afterwards, like initially, I mean, the, the way that I've painted it out there, it makes him sound really awful, but he isn't. He's, he, he is such a staunch ally now. And mm, it was just... Mm such an alien thing for him to have to try and cope with mm. in 1999 um yeah and i think know. it's understandable in some ways i mean i think some people paint people as terrible allies if they aren't on board with these things straight away but but i think it is initially shocking i mean mm. you know you, you're taught to think i suppose or you're told to think that gender doesn't matter and you should be on board straight away well if gender didn't matter then we wouldn't have people wanting to change their sex and their gender yeah. and um and let's say you know when it's a family member you know you, you've painted that person in a certain way it's a sister it's a brother it's a dad it's a mum. you know they're all gendered things so it is a bit of a shock initially when when they're changing that's why if we're being adult about it i think you're allowed to give someone some time to come around to it that's not excusing them being horrible in any way or, 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 or putting anyone down, but initially it can be shocking. Yeah, it, it is. And when I came out, I mean, I was aware before I came out and I spent a long time, I spent so much time living with shame around it um, mm. and, and fear that I'd reached the point where I was about to, um, I'd reached the point where I was about to, that I, I'd, I was in such a dark and depressed place that I was... Mm unlikely to have survived for much longer if i hadn't have come out mm. i um mm. i had been i <laughs> this shows you like sort of how uh, ridiculous my brain was working at the time i was thinking oh maybe if i could get some antidepressants i wouldn't feel quite so bad so i'm gonna have to go and try and pretend to the doctor that i'm depressed which i was clearly yeah. like absolutely broken i was disassociating yeah. at the time i was in such oh, a horrific state for yeah. just having tried to fulfill the life that i thought I had to, otherwise I would lose everyone and everything yeah. in it that I would mm. love. And went to the doctor and tried to sort of make out that I was depressed, thinking, I'm going to make out that I'm depressed, not realising quite how depressed I was and quite how obvious it was that I was um, not just having suicidal ideation, but very, very close to... to... Suicidal. Mm. Yeah, absolutely mm. suicidal. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so she immediately prescribed me antidepressants and I was like, yes. I'm a good actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. God. That was it. I was like, yeah. Oh, wow, I can't believe I managed to trick her into getting me these. This is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then about a week later, I had, I well, I can't have been more than 48 hours later, I got a letter telling me that a social worker and a psychiatrist were going to come round to the house to visit me. And I was like, oh, wow. I thought there was going to be a much longer waiting list for this sort of thing. This is this yeah. is great. Um, and then about a couple of days after that went, oh, right, okay. They come round to your house, they're going to have to section you. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember being sat there in the lounge of that house, just staring at the ground and them asking me if there was anything that I could tell them as to why I felt as awful as I did and was in clearly in such a terrible state that I was. 
And the anxiety just rising in me and that realisation that it was like I'd reached the point where if you're trapped in an upper floor of a burning building, you're not going to jump out of the window straight away. You, you have to wait until the fear of the flames is greater than the fear of the fall. And I was mm. in that moment there and I was like, wow. which of these is going to be easier? And I can remember expecting them to tell me that I was lying or that I was delusional or that there was just something wrong with me or be horrified and just walk out. And they did none of those things. They were really nice and really supportive. And they said, oh, is that all? <laughs> was one of the, was what, <laughs> the social worker went, oh, is that all? And I was like, oh, and it was just like a, like a weight lifted off my chest. And then, and then going, right, okay, well, now I'm going to have to come out and, and tell my family and my friends. And then, and then coming out and not realising that I was gay for a long time. But a lot of that reasoning was like, well, you know, of course I don't find men physically, because men aren't, are they? Mm. No one thinks that. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh no, yeah. actually quite a lot of people yeah. do. All right, okay, okay. And it took yeah. a long time for me to go, oh, right, okay, yeah, no, I'm gay and and trans. And at a time when there was so little information about people being trans out there, that mm. even the idea that you could be both was so shocking. <laughs> and it's like what are you trying to prove sort of thing so coming out as gay for me was a lot easier it's it, it was so interesting because i know a lot of people who are my age who came out as gay and had a lot of difficulty around that and came out as lesbian and and, mm-hmm. and struggled with things around that and struggled with shame associated with that but because i'd never really had to think anything about that i was just like oh i have absolutely no shame about this this is absolutely not a thing that i need to feel any shame over whatsoever because i <laughs> i'd saved all of that shame for being trans uh, <laughs> yeah and it's that that thing of realizing yeah. that the difference between embarrassment and shame is that embarrassment's where you feel like you've done something wrong rather than that deep-seated yeah. feeling that you are in some fundamental way mm. wrong the thing is that, that shame underpins almost every problem. I mean, mm. you know, all, yeah. all our issues are all basically shame-based. Mm. And that's what trauma does to you. It causes shame about all sorts of things. And it's so yeah. easy to set up, as most parents know. We, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's really easy. An inadvertent word is all you need. Yeah. A, a mm. look, nothing much. Yeah. And it builds on itself and it grows and it's an avalanche in the end. And then you end up doing whatever you can to avoid it. Yeah, I think that's why I'm so happy now that the cartoon series Big Mouth exists. Mm. Because I honestly think that it is one of the most important television programmes I've Mm. ever seen. Mm. Just in terms of dealing with this, um, Mm. dealing with these issues. and, um, And a lot of sex education as well. Yeah. Yeah, as well as the shame aspect of yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, because we don't tell people what's going on in our heads and we mm. infer so much from what other people say yeah, or don't say or how mm. they look at us. Although I feel, I mean, just to quickly talk about Big Mouth, maybe we shouldn't do that, but like the, the shame monster guy? The shame the, lizard. The shame wizard. Uh, lizard shame wizard. wizard, yeah, yeah. Shame wizard, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's Coach Steve calls him shame lizard. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was too much for me. Like, I actually had to stop watching the program because it represented the whole, yeah, just shame and it, it got it too good. And every time he came on screen, I yeah. felt so sad. I genuinely, I felt shame. I felt depressed. I was like, yeah. even though it's a cartoon, I was like, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> it was too real. But that shows how good that show is. It's if, like if somebody, what you should be doing is thinking, if somebody's trying to shame me, what, mm. what are they doing except trying to give you their shame? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, absolutely. that's all it's about. Because if you feel okay and you're not and you're not feeling any shame, why would you try and shame someone else? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. And if you yeah. think that somebody's shaming you, yeah. I've realised, oh. or at least in my oh. case, if I think that somebody's trying to make me feel shame, and I'm not entirely sure, I should probably just eat something. Uh, <laughs> 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 One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. You've talked about how when you did come out as trans that actually a lot of the fears that you had weren't realized. Yeah. That a lot of people were just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm. And you were ready to fight and you were ready to be like, ah, oh, you know, you, you were ready to have these conversations or even arguments with people and none of them ever happened. Yeah. I mean, was that a, a, a shock? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it yeah, absolutely yeah. was. I was absolutely prepared. Um, I was absolutely prepared for every single worst case scenario. Mm. And to not have that and to not only not have that, but have people be supportive was a really big shock to me. Mm. But even in spite of that, then going out into the world, I still have that fear around it and it's it's one of those fears that won't go away and I can remember when my therapist said oh so you know so how long have you had the agoraphobia and I was like I'm not, I've not got agoraphobia what are, you, what are you talking about I just don't like leaving the house you know I just prefer to be at home I'm a homebody I'm not like you know Sigourney Weaver in copycat who just stays at home and lives her life through the internet oh fuck no I am aren't I shit <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and there's so much of that and and then I was ready for all sorts of fights that never happened and then later the fights came and it's that thing because chatting through with my mum about my agoraphobia and her saying well you know you've always been someone who's put yourself out there who's never been scared who's been always been able to get up on stage in front of a room full of people and say things and you've you've fought battles and you've taken part in debates with people who don't even want you to exist so how are you now in this situation where you feel like you can't get out of the house and like that's that's how I'm in that situation Mm. now Mm. I fought too long and too hard for things that should have been mine anyway in a way that just completely broke me down and the worst of it I think more so than anything else was a debate with someone who very much doesn't like my existence whatsoever and I took part in this back when I thought you could still go and change people's minds by explaining things Mm -hmm. (laughs) telling them the truth yeah Uh, they don't like that at all. They, no. uh, they, it needs to feel true. It doesn't need to be mm. true. That's the mm. most important thing I've discovered. I've always called them gender deniers rather than anything mm. else because that's that's the position that they've taken. Mm. Um, there were quite a lot of them there and quite a lot of the celebrity ones who were in various different newspapers who were there. And it wasn't so much being around them or any of the things that they said or did. It was... The sheer fact of me taking part in that meant that my own community sent me lots and lots of abuse for it. Oh, no. I got like loads of emails saying, oh, you've got blood on your hands. You're just going and you're giving these people legitimacy by discussing things with them, by being on a stage alongside them that you have done this. And 
there were internet pylons and and various other things and I could always accept it when it was like one off and what I'd never been used to was finding people who were ostensibly on my side deciding that what I was doing was so horrific that I was unforgivable for it mm-hmm. and that alongside the regular fear that I'd had of being on the receiving end of transphobic attacks. And also because when I was growing up, and like I said, grew up in a little tiny village. And one of my friends when I was a kid came out as trans when she was in her teens and transitioned and ended up having to be homeschooled because she got attacked by various different kids. And, and it was just a horrible, horrible situation. And, and I'd seen her getting attacked, beaten up by kids on the bus and stuff and just was so scared of doing anything to step in. Mm. that I just I didn't and just kept my head down and one day it was like it was the news had spread that she'd gone home to her mum's house and her mum hadn't let her in and some of the kids who I'd been at school with who had picked on me and beaten me up had chased her and she'd ended up trying to cross over a dual carriageway and had been hit by a car and died Oh God! and sitting there with that and thinking how differently our lives had had gone and how I wished I could have defended her at some point and made it okay mm-hmm. for her to be herself and hadn't. And the fear of being read as trans in public in that situation because of the things that have happened to me in the past and not being able to emotionally understand that the world has changed since then and I don't need to be. And so as mm-hmm. a result of that, it's kind of always put me at a distance from the rest of the trans community in spite of the fact that like you know i'm the first trans person to be in a leading role on as a trans character on british television you know Mm. Mm. really difficult pub quiz answer uh, for which (laughs) almost everyone will say rebecca root and to have that and to the point that i really struggle with even watching shows which have trans characters in them because the second that that's coming up it's like how is this going to be dealt with is this going to go and be triggering Mm. of all of these issues that I really struggle with on a day-to-day basis around that. Mm. And so I think that was more than anything else. That was the thing which just sort of pushed me into feeling like I was trying to do something really, really good and try to do something helpful for my community and it not working out and not only not working out, but also me receiving a lot of anger and outpouring of hatred from people who I was I don't want to say like should have been on my side because that's not what it is at all. But it was a really, really difficult sort of period of my life. And it just left me in this situation where I was just like, I can't I can't do any of this anymore. But it's often the case, isn't it, that when people are trying to change things, they're very fixed in their views. And if you're a little bit further down the road, a little bit more mature, I suppose, Mm. then you can end up in real conflict with your I was going to say tribe, but they who kind of stop being your tribe all of a sudden when you do something different. Yeah. It happens such a lot and it's so, so traumatising. Yeah, it is. And and also now realising, like, because that must have been like six or seven years ago that I did that, and now realising yeah. that because of the things that I've done and the way that I've lived my life out in public and openly and talked mm. honestly about these things in an open and frank way as much as possible that I've been a part of the world changing in terms of its Mm. acceptance of trans rights as it has become so much so that there is an entire generation younger than me who is coming through and doesn't have any of these issues Mm. have their own issues 
obviously, mm. but they don't have any of these specific ones that I have. And it's on the one hand, I like, I've I've said at, at multiple occasions that I'm I'm really grateful of that because I remember coming out and hanging out in the lesbian scene when I first realised that I was gay, and spent a lot of time in the lesbian scene in Manchester and seeing older lesbians who were like a generation older than me, who all seemed to have this. <laughs> like almost bitterness yeah about <laughs> about the young we fought so hard for these rights that mm. you're enjoying mm. that we don't get to have and now you're just going about and being yourself and recognizing that that is the reward that's your reward yes that's mm. what taking it for granted is what you fought for yeah, yeah. you you planted a tree the shade that you knew you wouldn't sit in, but, yeah. you know, you can enjoy watching other people sit in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's that thing of recognising your fading cultural relevance is a thing that so many people have a lot of difficulty with when they sort of hit their 40s, mm. that they mm. are no longer the young people who are about to change the way the world is, but they are the people mm. who are now part of the establishment mm. and struggling with the fact that they then get called old-fashioned and out of touch mm. Mm. and that that's your reward. So for me, one of the best moments that I've experienced in the last 18 months was when somebody on Twitter told me off for my language not quite being trans-inclusive enough. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and when they said that, somebody pointed it out to them, that what actually what they just said and who they yeah. just said that to. Mm. And they were like, oh, my God. And I said, no, listen, do you know what? I am so grateful of this because I have spent my entire adult life feeling like I'm fighting this battle on my own. Mm. And this lets me know that I can just put the baton down because someone else is going to pick it up and run with it. Yeah. And it was a wonderful moment. It was a fantastic moment to realise. I usually like to end this podcast by asking our guests, how was it for you and was it good for you too? <laughs> Is there anything you're taking away? Um, I really enjoyed this. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it was, it was great. It was really nice. It was really enjoyable. Mm. And honestly, when I came into this, I didn't expect to nearly break down in tears in the middle of it, but I, I nearly did. And that's always a good way to spend an afternoon. It really is. Oh, Find your way to some emotional truth that makes you, yeah, oh, that makes you confront sorry. <laughs> No, it has been, it was, yeah, this is such a lovely mm. podcast to have taken part in. Thank you so much for asking oh, me. Oh, thank you. Oh, We've nice. had a lovely time. It's We've been so great, great to meet you. I mean, the fact that you've come okay. on here and shared so much, mm. for me, I always find it very healing when I share things. So I feel mm. like that's a great advert it is I know that I'm going to go away from this and (laughs) got an hour of three therapy there Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I'm going to do Um, yeah no it was (laughs) 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 gamed the system again (laughs) yeah well thank you so 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 much again it's been a pleasure it's been wonderful thank you it's the mailbag send Kate your queries to podcast at hatch.com it's the mailbag send Kate your queries podcast at hatch with two T's hello there I have a query for Kate I would like to know when the real sex education mailbag starts the real sex education mailbag starts right now thank you thank you so much to Bethany Black for coming on it was so great to speak to her now mum it's time for some questions from our listeners and to kick us off we've got one from Ash who says Hi, Degree and Kate. Lately, my husband has been suggesting role-playing. I think it could be fun, but I'm worried because I'm self-conscious and terrible at acting. Do you have any tips? Oh, that sounds that sounds really nice, actually. Um, so role-play can be really good, really good fun 
when you're a bit anxious about sex because when you're role playing you can do whatever you want to do you can be somebody different who is bold enough to do some of the things that you do or you can be really timid and chaste and different but it's a really good idea to work out a story beforehand. Now, some people think, oh, well, we'll have to just act out our fantasies. But anybody who's ever listened to this podcast before will know that if you do act out your fantasies, you can sometimes ruin them. And if they're your favourite, probably better to keep them to yourself. But a fantasy that you've developed between the two of you can be lots of fun. If there's any sort of kink involved, then you need to, to research that and use proper equipment and be very clear about safe words and not safe words like stop because sometimes that means go and be very clear about what's going to happen and not deviate from that at all. Indeed, don't try to be innovative within the story. Do what you've agreed, otherwise it's, it becomes non-consensual. But people have lots of fun using props and dressing up and with all sorts of silly stories. So, for instance couple decided to do a story about somebody being pulled over by a policeman who said I'm going to give you a ticket and she said oh no don't don't give me a ticket I'll do anything so they were doing anything <laughs> but he had come to the door in his police hat or some outfit and a real police car was passing oh, no. and stopped and thought, oh, there's something kicking off there. I'll go and help. Oh, no. And knocked on the door. They didn't answer. But they were in the kitchen with the curtains open. And the police officer came round and looked through the window. Oh. And got a, a shock. Peeping Bobby. <laughs> but they blamed me for that. Um, what? Yes, because they said, oh, it was my idea that they should role play. Um, so they had fun um, mm. and a chat with the police officer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Made word. a new friend in an interesting way oh and, and then said, I'm never doing that again. But it can be terrific fun and you can be somebody that you can't be normally. So I would say just be really, really, really clear about the story and do make sure you've taken precautions like shutting the curtains. I would also say because this person said they're self-conscious and terrible acting, I would say, you know, take it in baby steps. Things like the outfits, you know, mm. that is something where, you know, it's a small thing you can do, but maybe just that alone will get you into the... Into the mood. Exactly, mm. and, and can introduce you to the idea of role-playing. But you don't even need... I mean, you know, you don't necessarily have to have an outfit. And I no. think if Ash... Ash needs to remember, this isn't for anyone else. This is just for the two of you. So it should be great fun. And I don't suppose your partner's an amazing actor either. But, it, it you know, it doesn't matter. It's how you mm. feel well, and just... the fun you have, really, isn't it? P.S. Uh, my husband is Brad Pitt. No, he's not. Yeah, great actor. No, he's great not. Actor. Yeah. Uh, is Brad Pitt married to someone called Ash? Our next question is from Shaz. I knew it. Who says, My wife has Asperger's, and sometimes it's very difficult to talk to her about my needs. For instance, she does not like having her breasts touched. She has never liked this and gets really annoyed with me if I come anywhere near her chest. However, my breasts are really sensitive and she doesn't think to touch them either. I have tried talking to her about this and told her how much I enjoy touching and being touched, but she doesn't remember. Mm. This is really difficult because people with autism or Asperger's sometimes have incredibly sensitive skin. 
And a lot of women don't like having their breasts touched. I mean, others love it, but there are some people who really, really hate it, are really turned off by it and often have incredibly, incredibly sensitive skin so that if you just stroke them, they get red marks and things like that. They are also often very sensitive to smell and bodily fluids and things like that and don't like that kind of thing. So it can be quite difficult because they might like to stick to the same moves and really enjoy that. And it's a bit difficult if you want to be innovative. So maybe this is about during sex reminding your partner that you would like to have your breasts touched or maybe touch them yourself and maybe that will give her the message but I would take her hand or move her head if you want them licked or something like that and perhaps tell her that you're going to do that in advance if she really doesn't want to do it of course you will have to do it yourself because if she's objecting there's no way you can make her do it but if she's quite keen but just forgetting that happens to a lot of people with Asperger's and I wouldn't I wouldn't take it personally. I would just be innovative about ways to discuss it and and remind her during sex. Yeah, in the moment you'd be like, it'd be really hot right now if you touched my boobs. Yeah. Boom. Mm, boom. Excellent. Well, I think that about wraps up another episode of The Real Sex Education. Thank you so much again to Bethany Black for speaking to us earlier. Thank you to Kate Campbell for her accredited sex therapy wisdom. Thanks, Mum. Thank you, Diggs. And thank you for listening. See you next week for some more Real Sex Education. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Diggory Waite. And the executive producer is Andy Goddard. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.